Candace, do you remember when I pitched you this question as our very first episode? I do. And I remember thinking that this is ridiculous. <laughs> this is the hardest question. I agree. But it really goes right to why we started this podcast. It really does. The question is from Spencer Allegart of Brooklyn. He's trying to do his part for climate with some big lifestyle changes. He's a vegan. He doesn't drive. And he wants to know, is it really worth it? Would it make a difference if I or many people started to live a less carbon intense or greenhouse gas emitting intense lifestyle, especially if we have very wealthy people flying private jets, consuming a lot more than the average person, probably in their lifetime even. What difference do our individual actions really make? Well, let's unpack that. This is the Anti-Dread Climate Podcast, your practical, personal guide to protecting the planet. I'm Kaylee Wells, KCRW's climate reporter. And I'm Candace Dickens-Russell, an environmental educator and CEO of Friends of the LA River. You know, it makes perfect sense that people are wondering this. We all want to know what's going to move the needle and if what we do as individuals really matters. So I called up Professor Jiaying Zhao. She's a psychology professor at the University of British Columbia. She studies what works when you're trying to get people to act to help the climate. And here's how she answered Spencer's question about whether his veganism and his car-free lifestyle matter. I mean, his action definitely makes a difference. Um, just because someone else emits more carbon greenhouse gases than we do doesn't mean that our actions don't matter. So I think that's a trap that we can easily fall into. It certainly feels not fair, but again, does not mean that this person's actions don't matter. And in fact, I want to say that individual action does matter a lot. Oh, so yeah, she's definitely heard this question before. Oh, yeah. She actually has an entire TED Talk on matter. Spencer's question. Because they embody our values and our care for the planet to other people. They can spread like a ripple effect to instigate collective action. They send a market signal to businesses, and they can trigger broader structural institutional change. You know, this sounds a lot like the theory of social diffusion. I'm glad you said that because Professor Zhao used that term, but it's been like a really long time since I've been in sociology class, and I don't know what it means. So explain that to me. Yeah. In environmental work, we're always thinking about how do we encourage people to change, right? How do we like make change actually happen? And if you think about it in a super simple term, this theory of social diffusion talks about what does it take in order to get people to make these sorts of changes? And so it's questions like, what makes people start using the bike lane? Or what makes a neighborhood begin to recycle? Like I'm old enough to remember when recycling, curbside recycling was like rolled out for the first sure, time. Yep. So you always have these early adopters and you have these people who lag behind a little bit. And so so the point is that once enough people begin to take an action, it starts to snowball. And there's this tipping point that you reach that is where it becomes more mainstream and more socially acceptable and therefore adopted into kind of the collective culture. And that number is somewhere around 16 percent. I'm kind of shocked at 16 percent. Yeah. Does much... that seem low? Or... Yes, it does seem it does low. Seem... You know, I think it's because we're talking about communities. It's not like the whole world, but like once a community starts to see 16 percent of people on the street are putting out these little yellow bins. They used to be yellow a long time ago where I grew up. Um, oh, maybe I'll put out my little yellow bin, too. So it's this this idea that you start to see other people do things and you think, OK, maybe I can do that, too. OK, so that makes sense. So it's kind of like the way that I'm seeing EVs all over the place now, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. maybe it's not the majority of cars, but I sure feel like if I'm driving on the freeway and I look around, I can still point out 
a few at any given time. Yeah, people need to see other people taking these sorts of actions. And then it kind of normalizes and begins to kind of mainstream these actions. And so when it comes to climate, it might feel like we're doing things alone. It might feel very isolating to, you know, be making the, you know, whatever food you're making or driving whatever you're driving. But the truth is, as an early adopter, you're taking the steps to build toward that 16% and then tipping point. I like the point you're making about something feeling lonely mm-hmm. or feeling alone. Mm-hmm. Um, Professor Zhao made that same point that making these climate decisions can feel kind of lonely, especially mm. when you are one of these early adopters. Mm-hmm. And she said the way to get over that feeling is buying into this idea that we're really all part of this system, that we're kind of working on a big group project together. Mm-hmm. And it's really important that we do well on the group project. We need to feel that we're part of a, a bigger movement that there are like-minded people out there who are just like us. Talking to people who share your views and concerns is a huge social reinforcement. We're social animals. So everything we do uh, needs to have some social reinforcement. I think that's exactly it. We all need to be doing our best, but we also need to be sharing what we're doing so we don't feel alone. And that's what people we know in real life, that's people we know online, that's like looking at, at what people are, are doing that inspires us and knowing that things that we're doing are possibly inspiring others. Okay, so another question I receive from people who maybe aren't willing to try as hard as Spencer just yet <laughs> are... Well, but policies are really what makes the big difference. And, Mm. you know, a carbon tax is really what we need. Or we need California to ban gas cars for me to actually get an electric car. Is that really what's going to change behavior? You know, it's it's one of those crutches that I think about. And yes, it's true. When a policy is changed and something is adopted just very, very widely because a policy has changed, that's great. But we can't all just sit around and wait for that. I know people have been composting forever and ever and ever. Now it's mandated by the city of Los Angeles and there's compost bins everywhere. That's cool. That's great. But it doesn't mean that the things that people did before, the composting that was happening before, the compost workshops that I've seen my friends teaching over the years, that doesn't mean that those didn't matter or don't count because all of that food waste was diverted from the landfill. So yes, policy is great. And it's really important when the legal system or the government can mandate something and and make a big change like that, because that does move the needle much more quickly. But it's not something we should all be sitting around with our arms folded waiting to happen. Okay, I see what you're saying. To inspire policy change, you need to have people who are showing that that's actually something they want to see. Well, that's the other part of it, right? We didn't start composting citywide in the city of L.A. because it was just like this cool thing to do. It was because people were doing it and showing how important it was and showing what a significant difference it makes to landfill diversion and showing what a significant difference it makes to just waste in general and how people think about their waste. So I think that we cannot use policy as an excuse to not take action, individual action. All right, time for takeaways. Spencer, does it make a difference what you're doing there in Brooklyn? Yes, it does. Yes, we each have a carbon footprint we leave behind. Yours is smaller than many others, and that's a good thing. And yes, because you're taking us closer to that tipping point when more and more people start embracing a climate health lifestyle. Also, blaming policies and corporations and waiting for them to change is a crutch. If you're waiting for a politician or leader to have that aha moment and tell you what to do, you're going to be waiting for a long time. Policies change when people demand they change. So lead your leaders. Mm -hmm. People power.
let's finish up with some good news. Okay, let's do it. So we were talking about EVs. In California, in the last quarter, out of all the cars sold, a quarter of them were electric. So we're now Ooh. past that 16% tipping point that you were talking about. Excellent. That is good news. I know. That's it this week on the Anti-Dread Climate Podcast. If you haven't, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. We've got a newsletter that will have our advice every week and the place to subscribe to that or to ask us a question is at kcrw.com slash climate. Next week, we're tackling the most popular question we've gotten so far. If I'm going to recycle a jar of peanut butter... Am I wasting water by washing out the peanut butter? <laughs> I want someone to do that calculus for me and tell me what I should be doing. I'm Candace Hickens-Russell, environmental educator and CEO at Friends of the LA River. I'm Kaylee Wells. I'm the climate reporter at KCRW. Our executive producer is Sonia Geis. Our production assistant is Celine Mendiola. Technical directors are John Meek and Hope Brush. Music by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. The Anti-Dread Climate Podcast is a KCRW production.